Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Um, Don't feel comfortable coming yet. Wednesday night, this is going to premiere on Facebook, so I'm going to address them before I get started. So um, welcome. If you are um, joining us on Wednesday night, um, we're we're so glad you can join us on Facebook um, or through podcast if that's how you're hearing this. Um, But but we're thankful that you get to join us as we study the book of Revelation. Um, And so if you're here with me or if you're on the camera, um, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at the first 11 verses tonight, and we're going to, um, as you have that handout, we're going to look at some rules for reading this book, because this book um, causes a lot of people trouble, and so we want to establish some foundational rules um, to read the book as we work our way through it for kind of the rest of this year. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and um, he's a pastor, and he told me that a lady in his church was talking to him and said to him, I consider myself an expert in revelations. And I said to him, obviously she isn't or she'd know there's no S in the end of the word. Um, And that's the reality of this book. Um, A lot of people think they're experts on it when in reality they don't even understand the basics of it. Um, There's no S on on the end of revelation. I just wanna lay that out because it's often a pet peeve of, of people who, are, um, who have a seminary degree like me that, that we know there's no S there and people are so commonly calling it revelations. Um, I plan to preach this book on a much deeper level in a few years. Um, I, I got to preach a few other books to lay some groundwork for it, um, like Daniel and 1 Thessalonians and, and some others. Um, but over the, over the next 10 weeks, actually 11 weeks, we'll miss one week, um, we're going to do a general overview of the book um, and, and, and just see what the book's about. Um, I, I am going to preach it in a few years, but I felt the need to go ahead and go through it in a general way, as I realize there's a lot of people talking about the end of the world right now, because we're in a crazy time. Um, so, the difficulty with the book of Revelation is that there's, there's really no um, agreed-upon interpretation of the book among Christians. Um, Most people love to hear Revelation taught because they don't understand it and they want to. Um, Most pastors fear preaching Revelation because they don't understand it. Um, There tends to be kind of three views of the book. I could give you the scholarly names for them. I'm not going to bore you with that. Just typically people tend to read this book as either about the past, about the present, or about the future. Um, That tends to be where people fall. Um, I have friends that I know who love Jesus, who love God, who who follow Christ faithfully, um, who are saved, who who believe all three of those. Some believe it's about the past, some believe it's about the present, some about the future. Um, A small group of people believe this book is about the past. Um, There was a very important event that happened in the nation of Israel in 70 A.D., 
Um, you know, they had their nation, they had their temple, they had all that stuff. The Roman Empire came in and just wiped the place out and leveled it. Um, and, and from that day on, the Jewish people were not gathered as a nation, just flattened the place. They were scattered, and, and they didn't actually get their nation back until the 1900s. Um, that, they have a pretty compelling argument. We're, we're, we'll get into that later on. They have a pretty compelling argument as to why this book is about that. Um, some days I'm almost convinced by it. Um, the popular view held by most mainstream Christianity is that this book is about the future. Um, you'll hear it everywhere. Um, you'll, you'll see it in the Schofield Reference Bible. If you have that study Bible, you'll see it um, in things like the Left Behind series. You'll see it um, from televangelists on TV. You'll see it from many well-known preachers, people like John Hagee, David Jeremiah, Robert Jeffries, um, various people like that. You'll even see it in pop culture. It comes up all the time in movies and TV and books, and it's all over the place. Um, the viewpoint for, of the future perspective is that this book is a timeline of the events that will take place during the Great Tribulation period at the end of history. Um, this is probably the view most people of our church hold to. Um, I'm actually in the camp that believes Revelation is primarily concerned with the present. Um, there are certainly future things in it, and we'll deal with those. And there's certainly a lot of things about the past in it. But I think it's primarily about the present. It's primarily concerned with the experience that the church has in the world as she seeks to follow Christ faithfully in the face of satanic opposition. Um, when, when it's read this way, it's applicable to the first century church it was written to. It's also applicable to us and to every church in between and every church that will come after us. When, when it's just about the past, then it's just for those Christians back then. When it's just about the future, then it's just for Christians in the future. When it's about the present, it's for all churches, and it can be applied to all churches. Um, you know, it's really interesting around the world. Revelation is one of the favorite books of the persecuted church. Not because they're interested in figuring out where all the world events fit into it. Because it gives them hope to keep holding fast to Jesus in the face of of opposition because they've seen he's already victorious on their behalf. He's already won. So because of the nature of Revelation, because there's no agreed upon interpretation of it, um, the, the, we're going to do some rules for reading the book. These are going to be a guide as we study it over the next 10 weeks. I want you to fill these in, and I want you to keep this in your Bible so that we can constantly reference back to this as we're going through the book. Um, certainly there will be disagreements between us um, likely. Um, but our view of the end uh, of history, our view of the end times, is a third-level issue in doctrine. I've, I've taught you before, first-level issues are things you have to believe to be a Christian. You know, the Bible is the inspired and errant Word of God. Uh, Jesus is the only way to God. Heaven and hell exist, things like that. Second-level issues are things that you have to believe to be in the same church. So should we baptize babies? Can women be pastors? Th things like that. Third-level issues are things we can disagree on and still be in the same church together and still love each other. This is a third-level issue. We can disagree about end times and still love each other and worship together. So let's commit to start with that at the beginning. So Revelation 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and we're going to find 12 rules for reading the book in, in, this, in these 11 verses. Well, most of them are in these 11 verses. A couple of them I just came up with. 
says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of, on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. <clears throat> um, so as we work through, you, you have that handout. I'll, I'll tell you when, you when you fill it in. So first rule um, about the book of Revelation, understand what you're reading. You're reading an apocalypse. An apocalypse. You would, um, you, you read different pieces of writing in different ways. Um, so if you um, opened up your newspaper and, and you read the comic strip of, um, of Garfield, um, you're probably going to read that a little different than you might read, you know, a, a textbook in college. Um, you're probably going to read that a little different than you might read a love letter from your spouse. Um, you'll probably read that a little different than maybe a recipe in a recipe book. Um, so if you're going to understand Revelation and read it appropriately, you have to understand what it is. It's an apocalypse. You're not reading a novel, you're reading an apocalypse. An apocalypse was a type of writing in the first century and, um, and before that time as well. Um, there are way more apocalypses than just the book of Revelation. There's just only one in the Bible. Um, apocalypse, the word does not mean end of the world. That's how it's often used, um, uh, even in pop culture. Um, you, you, when you hear of a zombie apocalypse, what do you think of? Well, an end-of-the-world scenario involving zombies, um, a, a post-crazy world where zombies have taken over. But that's not what the word apocalypse means. Um, it, it's a Greek word. Um, it means revelation. You'll see verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Greek, that's apocalypse Jesus Christ. I'm speaking Spanish. Uh, apocalypse Jesus Christ. That's how it reads in Greek. Um, so, so the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the first word in the book. Just to give you a little other picture of how this word is used, look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, verse 25. <clears throat> 
Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The word right there where it says revealed them to little children in Greek, Jesus apocalypsed it to little children. That, that's what the word is in Greek. Um, and, and so it's, it's this idea of revealing. It's pulling back the curtain and showing what's going on behind the curtain. Um, that's what it means. It does not mean into the world. It means to uncover or to reveal. Um, these types of writings seek to show the true nature of something, what's going on behind the scenes, uh, the true nature of, of what's going on in the world from a divine perspective. There are a few other sections in the Bible that have apocalypse, uh, several chapters in the book of Zechariah, um, and then Daniel chapter 7 through 12. Th those are apocalypses. Um, apocalypses use symbols and imagery based out of the rest of the Bible. That they use a lot of symbols, and if you've been reading your Bible, you know what those symbols are. Um, so, for example, in Revelation, you'll see a lamb pop up a lot. We've seen a lamb all over the Bible, haven't we? We saw it in Leviticus. It's what they used to sacrifice to pay for their sins. Um, it is what, um, it sort of what Abraham sees in the thicket when he's going to sacrifice Isaac. It's a ram, but, but that's kind of the same thing in the Bible. A ram and a lamb are both used in that regard. Um, it's a sacrificial animal to take away sin. Or you think of a beast. Um, in the Bible, a beast, a serpent, and a dragon all kind of represent the same thing. So you think Genesis 3.1 very beginning of the Bible, what's it say? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Um, and then you draw that symbol through Daniel 7, you got these four beasts that rise up out of the ocean to, to take over the world, and God destroys them all. And then you carry that through to Revelation 13, and you have the beast. He's the main villain of the book of Revelation. So it's these symbols that you, you know what they are if you've read the Bible. Um, you also have the sea. So, um, so in the Bible, the sea, as in the ocean, always represents chaos. You think of in the creation. Um, God looks out at the, at, he, he creates the earth. He hasn't yet done all the other stuff, but, but there's, it's just a chaotic mess of sea on day one before he creates light. Then you trace that through to Exodus. And, and what does God do to deliver the Israelites? He parts the sea he gets them through it, and then he brings the sea down to judge them in chaos. Um, or you think of the Gospels, and the, the uh, disciples are on the boat, and they're freaking out. And Jesus is walking on the water, and he just says, peace be still, and the chaos stops on the sea. And then you get to the end of Revelation, and it says there's no more sea in that place. In, in eternity, there's no more sea. It's not that there's no beach in heaven. It's there's no more chaos there. Sometimes in an apocalypse, the passage tells you what the symbols are. So in the case of Daniel, there's a lot of times it gives you the vision and then it gives you an interpretation of the vision. Um, but oftentimes it's just assumed that you know what those symbols are from reading your Bible, from, from knowing the rest of the story. Um, I forgot to mention um, at, at the end of this, at, at the end of every one of these, I'll ask if you have any questions of follow-up or anything like that. So if you have any questions, Take note of those, and, I'll, and we'll have a time for that at the end. Um, apocalypses use numbers symbolically. There's a lot of uses of numbers. If you know the book of Revelation, there's numbers all over the place. Uh, the number 12 and its multiples, 144,000, always represent God's people. The number 10 and its multiples, 
a thousand, always represent complete amounts of time. The number seven always represents perfection and completion. So you have the seven spirits, you have the seven churches, you have the seven judgments. Um, the number four also represents completeness. You have the four parts of the earth, as in all of the earth, the complete part of the earth. Um, sometimes the numbers four and seven are used together. So there are four series of seven judgments in the book of Revelation. The, there's certain names of Christ used four or seven times over the whole book. The seven spirits are mentioned four times. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God 28 times. Seven times four. Now, is it possible some of these numbers mean nothing? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But when you see these numbers play out, you start to wonder, is there someone behind this book? This isn't just some crazy fisherman writing this on an island. There's someone inspiring this book. There's someone behind the scenes doing something with this. Uh, understand the unfolding of history of the world is someone's in the driver's seat of that. Someone's behind it. Someone's carrying it out. It's not out of control. It's not, uh, not going to fly off the rail. He, he knows what he's doing. He's, he's behind it. Rule number two. Your interpretation of the book has to be able to be understood by the seven churches. This book is written to seven churches, seven real churches. It's written to seven churches in the first century in Asia. If they can't understand it, this book is kind of pointless for them. Um, and so verse, chapter, verse 4, that's where that rule comes from. The seven churches. John is writing to seven churches. Um, and so one example of this, of, of how it has to make sense to the seven churches, is in the symbols. So you'll see an eagle pop up in the book of Revelation. Uh, that's not a reference to America. It, it's, it's not. They wouldn't have understood that. Um, for that matter, an eagle in this time was not the beautiful animal that we have today. It would have been more like a vulture. Like it just ate dead animals all the time. Um, a locust. We'll get into this a little more in a minute, but... A locust is not a helicopter in Revelation. They wouldn't have understood that. It wouldn't have been any helpful to them if they thought a locust was a helicopter. Let me give you maybe a modern example of this. Let's say I wrote a book like Revelation today. Um, and in that book I said, um, on, the fourth, on the third day of the 11th month, the elephant and the donkey went to war against one another. What am I talking about? Election day, right? Okay, so let's say that, um, let's say a thousand years from now, somebody gets a copy of what I wrote and they read it. Let's say, you know, let's say America is no longer a nation and they didn't keep American history very well. And so let's say this is a completely different nation. They read this. They have a completely different understanding of what an elephant and a donkey are. Let's say that an elephant is the rich and donkey is the poor. And so if they read that and said, oh, this guy's talking about a war between the rich and the poor people. Would that be an accurate interpretation of what I wrote? No. No. So we, we have to understand the symbols in the book from, from the first century's perspective, not from ours, or we will misinterpret it. Third, don't immediately assume everything you're reading in the book is something far off in the future. Might be but not necessarily everything in the book is far off in the future. See if maybe John is referencing something that would have been going on at that time. 
Notice verse 1. The things that must soon take place. Uh, Sometimes we like to, you know, give God a pass there and say, oh, he wasn't actually talking about... Soon for him meant thousands of years later. Well, I mean, maybe it did, but also maybe it's something soon. Maybe these things are going to start to be carried out pretty soon for for these people. Um, but, But this book has some things that happen in the future, definitely. But some things in it don't happen in the future. There's even things in here that happen well before John wrote this. Um, so sometimes this book shows things far off in the future. So Revelation 19, the second coming of Jesus, that's far off in the future for these people. Um, Revelation 21 and 22, eternity, still far off for, for them, far off. Sometimes this book shows things that happen in the past. So Revelation 12, there's this vision of a woman who gives birth, and the dragon is sitting there waiting to capture the baby and, and destroy it. But God grabs the baby and pulls him up to heaven, and he reigns on high. All right, well, that's a reference to the birth, life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That's already happened when Revelation is written. Sometimes the book shows things that would have happened either in the near future for them or just in the previous couple decades. Um, So, for example, Revelation 13, um, you see the beast. Um, And there's a lot of details there. We're going to get into those once we get to that part of the book. Um, but, but there's, uh, I think the beast um, had some fulfillment there in, in that time and, and also has been fulfilled in, in people ever since. Um, but specifically, Revelation 13 mentions that the beast has a head wound. He's been wounded in his head. Um, if you had told first century Christians living about 95 AD about an evil guy that rules the world who had a head wound, they would have thought 30 years back to a guy named Nero who ruled the Roman Empire who... Um, killed himself by inflicting a head wound on himself. That They would have thought about that guy. So th- there's a sense in which the beast is Nero, and there's a sense in which we can find the beast in so many different historical figures beyond that. But for them, they would have read that and said, that's Nero. That's that evil guy that persecuted the church like crazy. So some things happen in the future in this book, some don't. Rule number four. Know that this book is an Old Testament mosaic. An Old Testament mosaic. What is a mosaic? Anybody know? In art, it's one of those pictures where there's a bunch of tiny little colored rocks and they're all put together to make this beautiful image. But if you just took all those rocks off and threw them on the floor, they wouldn't be a pretty picture. But they've been individually placed to make this beautiful picture. And that's how the book of Revelation is with the Old Testament. Um, The the Revelation is full of so many references and allusions to the Old Testament. Sometimes direct quotes, sometimes symbols, sometimes um, allusions. It's actually been said that if John had written Revelation today, he would have a lawsuit for plagiarism with how much he mentions the Old Testament. Um, There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 265 of those verses contain either a direct quote, a reference, or an allusion to something in the Old Testament. And of those 265 verses, total there are 550 different Old Testament references in Revelation. 
What's that tell you? That tells you that if you want to understand Revelation, you have to understand it with the Old Testament in view. You cannot understand it apart from the Old Testament. Because that's John's Bible. He doesn't have the New Testament yet. He's only got the Old Testament. Hasn't fully been put together yet. You've got to understand it with the Old Testament. So I've already referenced this, but let's just give one example. Um, Oftentimes, people will take something in Revelation that's clearly referencing the Old Testament, and they will take it out of its Old Testament context, and they'll connect it to something they saw on the the news. Um, And and so one example of this, uh, look at Revelation 9. Revelation 9, 7 through 11. This is probably the most famous one, honestly. Um, Revelation 9, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Um, There's been several people read that and say that's an Apache helicopter. I mean, look at it. It's got the face of a man. It's got a scorpion's tail. It's got something flying around its head that makes a lot of noise. Um, People have read that and said that's an Apache helicopter. John obviously didn't know what that was, so he, you know, he's seen a vision of the future, so he comes up with the best thing he can come up with. That's one option. Um, But Joel chapter 1, as well as many other places in the Old Testament, locusts are used for judgment over and over and over. Joel 1, 4 and 5, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Joel's all about God's judgment through this pack of locusts that came on the land. Um, So I tend to think Revelation 9 is about locusts, not about helicopters. Um... So know that this book is an Old Testament mosaic. Rule number five, not everything has to be made into a puzzle piece. That's what happens sometimes. Everything in this book is made into a puzzle piece. Um, I was talking to John Striplin a few weeks ago, and and we were talking about the fact that I was teaching Revelation pretty soon. And John said, "Um, that's a good book. You just can't get lost in all the details or you'll miss the entire point. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Um, Because what happens is we turn everything in this book into a puzzle piece and we miss the point of what's happening in the book. Probably one example of this um, is the seven churches in chapters two and three. Um, Some people have taken it and and looked at all of Christian history and made it to represent uh, the seven churches of history, starting with the ascension and coming to the second coming. Um, Interestingly, everyone who ever does that, their, their age is always the seventh church like right before the second coming. Um, the problem with this is that when, you, when they place it like that, the, the, the fifth church, Sardis, the dead church, is the Reformation time period. If you know church history, the Reformation is when like the church was thriving. 
It's not when they're dead. Um, so not everything in the book has to be a puzzle piece. Some, some certainly are, but, but, but we're going to, as we work through it, make sure that we don't fall into that trap. Um, number six, this book isn't written, to, isn't written to scare you to death. It's written to give you hope. It's not written to scare you to death. It's written to give you hope. People are fascinated with scary stuff. They're scared of it, but they can't stop staring at it. It's why horror movies are so popular. Like, I've, I've seen several horror movies in, in my life, and, and the thing about horror movies is every one of them, the entire movie, the, the good guys are running for their life. A couple of them are getting, like, you know, broken in half and stuff, and, you know, all kinds of gory stuff. And then at the end, the good guys never win. The, the dragon or the monster or whatever always kills all the good guys. Why is that such a popular type of story? Because people love to stare at what they're scared of, that they're amazed by it. And some preachers literally make a living off scaring people to death with the book of Revelation. Um, I once heard of some kids who had a sleepover, um, and they, they told their preacher about it later, and they said, so last night we had a sleepover, we turned the lights out, we got under the covers, we read the book of Revelation to each other. If Revelation scares you, you're reading it wrong. It's not written to scare you, it's written to give you hope. Revelation is written to give hope to churches, seven in that time, but all the churches over the course of history. It's meant to show suffering churches that no matter the intensity of their suffering, Christ has won the victory over the devil and the world. That's already won. It's secure. And so don't let it scare you to death. Let it give you solid hope in Christ. Number seven, Revelation is meant to reveal truth not keep it hidden. It's meant to pull back the curtain and show you truth, not keep it hidden. It's not meant to be really difficult to figure out. We tend to make it the most difficult book in the Bible to figure out because we don't understand the symbols because we don't live in that time. But the people who this was written to would have understood this book perfectly. Um, it, it would have been read out loud in the churches. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Understand what would have happened. John would have written this book, and he would have sent it. And if you look at the map, the seven churches are kind of the, the, the postal route, counterclockwise. Um, so it would have gone Ephesus, Smyrna, you know, all of those. And it would have gone to the church, the pastor would have gotten it, the same way that if someone writes a thank you note for a dinner that we gave them, I get that and I read it to you at the end of service. Forgot to do that this morning, I've got one for next week. Um, and so he would have gotten this letter, he would have read it out loud to his congregation once, and it would have been sent on to the next church. It's written in such a way that they would have been able to understand it upon one reading from their pastor. That, that's what it's meant to be. It's not meant to, we, we tend to take it and we say, oh, there's all kinds of hidden meanings behind this. I got to decode. And so we get our decoder pens out and we try and figure it out. And we just end up confusing ourselves even more. Um, it's meant to be able to be understood upon hearing it read. Pastor friend of mine um, went to Walmart a few years ago. Um, and he was in line at Walmart. He, he went through all Walmart buying all of his groceries and he noticed that a lot of shelves were empty. A lot of things he needed was not there. And uh, he went to the checkout and he put all of his groceries on and the cashier's beep, 
beep, and he just decides to say, why are all the shelves empty? And the lady said, it's in the book of Revelation, you need to read it. And he said, really? Empty shelves in Walmart in the book of Revelation? Yeah, yeah, you need to read it. And he said, you know, I've, I've read it pretty closely. I must have missed the Walmart part. And then the shopper behind him said, I blame Obama. The, the pastor knew a worker at Walmart. Turns out it was just the stock boys were lazy. Like, that was the, that was the whole reason that was the case. No Obama or Revelation. Um, but that's why a lot of people are intimidated by this book. Because all, all kinds of people have read it and, and tried to find things in it that aren't in it. And when the average person reads this and doesn't see all that, they just assume they must not understand anything. And they give up on it. It's meant to reveal truth to you, not keep it hidden. You don't have to get a shovel to dig down and figure out what this stuff means. Number eight. This one may be controversial. Um, left behind is not your lens to read Revelation. Revelation is your lens to read left behind. Um, I came to faith reading the first left behind novel. M many of you know that. Um, I read the first chapter, and the main character is an airline pilot who... Um, thinks he's a pretty good guy. His wife um, talks about the rapture a lot and how it's going to be so awesome. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll go in the rapture. That's no problem. And, and then the rapture happens and his wife is taken and he's left. And, and it hit me. I'm that guy. I'm trusting in my own goodness. I'm not really that good. And I'm, I'm, I don't know Christ. And so I gave my life to Christ off reading that first chapter of that novel. I'm very grateful for this series. I listened to it on audio recently. Um, I listened to the whole series while I was running and while I was, you know, commuting back and forth and everything. Uh, it, I, I had read it back in high school, but I wanted to kind of go through it again in preparation for this series. Um, it's a very good fictional story. Characters are well written. The villain is menacing. It's exciting. Um, but you can't use Left Behind as a guide to read Revelation. It's not inspired by God. And in my opinion, it gets a lot of things wrong. Um, we'll get into how I think Revelation is laid out in a minute, but here's a couple of examples of how I think the, the series gets things wrong. Chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll. Excuse me, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and every one slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the rocks, to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? All right, very clearly the second coming of Jesus. Like, like people are, people are, the wrath of, the, of Jesus is being poured out on those who don't follow him, and they are literally crying out, rocks crush our brains so that we don't have to endure this. Well, the Left Behind series, you know, reads the book chronologically, and so these seven seals are just seven 
judgments that happen in the first two years of the tribulation. And so this is just an earthquake that hits the world in the Left Behind series. And you can escape it if you're in an airplane, because some characters do. That, that's not what the text is teaching. Everybody is experiencing this, and they're all ready to die under this wrath. Um, I mentioned Revelation 12 earlier. It's a long passage, so I'm not going to read it. A woman gives birth to Jesus. Satan is cast out of heaven. Jesus is brought up into heaven. Very clearly, something that's already happened, but because Left Behind has to make this into an entire story, uh, in Left Behind, a character just has a vision, and he sees that happen. But it's already happened. There's no need to see it happen again. Um, if you've read the Left Behind series... I hope it was a great story, but as we go into Revelation, let's, let's read it with a fresh view. Let, let's throw that out as our interpreting guide, and let's look at what the text says. Number nine, tribulation is not confined to the future. It is in the present as well. That's Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation... John says, I'm in the tribulation. It's not just something far off at the end of history. It's going on now. I'm your partner in the tribulation. When Revelation's talked about, it's often implied that the tribulation is just the final seven years of history. And while I believe the Bible teaches there will be a, a tribulation at the end, John says, I'm your partner in the tribulation now. It's, it's going on now. You know, if we just look at church history, there's no shortage of tribulation, persecution, and martyrdom. Um, John is writing from an island called Patmos. He's been sent there as a criminal simply for being a Christian. Um, actually, before they sent him there, they tried to kill him by boiling him in a cauldron of oil. They tried to deep fry John. Didn't work. So he gets sent to Patmos, and that's where he writes this. Other examples, 10 of the 11 disciples, John being the one that wasn't, 10 of the 11 disciples were all killed for their faith. Christians were crucified, which if you've studied crucifixion, worst way to die in the history of humanity. Um, Christians were fed to lions during the Roman Empire, and that's, we don't often think about what that means. Like, you're fed to a lion and he starts eating your foot, and you've got to sit and wait for him to get up to your head and just suffer through it. Um, William Tyndale was the first person to translate the Bible into English. Um, before King James did it, William Tyndale did it. Um, and the Roman Catholic Church strangled him to death and burned his corpse for that, just for translating the Bible to English. More Christians were killed for their faith from 1900 to 2020 than total from the ascension of Jesus to 1900. That is in 120 years uh, of our modern day, more Christians have been killed for their faith than 1900 years before that. Now, we don't think about that because we live in a really unique time and unique place. Um, in most of the history of the United States, the culture's been pretty friendly to the church. Now, we know that's dying away more and more here, um, but understand this place we live in is not normal. It's not normal. For most Christians in most times and places, tribulation and persecution has been the norm. It's been the norm. So tribulation is not something far off in the future. It's been the story of the church for 2,000 years. And Revelation is written to people in the face of that persecution. John is writing to people who will be asked to either lie about their faith and say, I'm not a Christian, to compromise their faith, that is, 
yeah, I'll identify with Jesus, but I'll worship the emperor as well so I don't die. Or die for being a Christian. We have to choose one of those three options. So they're in tribulation. It's not just something far off in the future. It's been around. Number 10, we can't add to or take away anything from what this book says. Revelation ends with a curse on its readers. It's often ignored, the curse, but um, Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away, sorry, I lost my place. If anyone takes away from the words of, the, of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. We often read that as don't take anything out of the Bible, and it could be applied there as well, but it's specifically written for revelation. You cannot add to anything in it or take away anything from it. But people do that all the time, don't they? They, they can find Obama and microchips and Apache helicopters and credit cards and the internet and the iPhone and so many other things in this book that aren't in there. We cannot say anything is in this book more than what is actually there. So as we work through these texts, we're going to have to look and see what have we always been told about this passage, what have we always understood about this passage, and what's actually in the text, because we can't add to it. Number 11, just because something in the book is symbolic doesn't mean we're not reading the Bible literally. Verse 1 you notice it says, he made known it, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That he made it known in Greek is the word semino. Semino is a word very often used to describe um, making something known through signs and symbols, making something known through symbols that point to a literal reality but, but are not meant to be read literally. Um, so the things in this book are meant to be symbolic. That doesn't mean they're not pointing to something literal, but the, the symbol itself is not the literal thing. The, the reality it's pointing to is literal. So the reason this is so controversial, back in the early 1900s, I think late 1800s, there was a controversy known as the fundamentalist and the modernist controversy. Fundamentalist held to the scriptures as being inspired. Modernist said, no, science has kind of disproven some of it. So um, that, that's the thing. The fundamentalist all held to a very literal reading of Revelation. And so if you didn't hold to that reading, you didn't take the Bible literally. Um, and we can't fall into that trap. Nobody reads the Bible 100% literally, even in the book of Revelation. So is the devil a dragon, as Revelation 12 puts out? Or is he an angel of light, as 2 Corinthians 11 puts out? Because he can't be both. He's got to be one or the other. Well, he's an angel of, of light who fell from heaven. The, the Revelation depicts him as a dragon for symbolic purposes. Re Revelation 5, is Jesus literally a lamb with seven eyes? No, he took on human flesh. He's a man. Uh, a lamb is what is used to depict him in Revelation. Um, outside of Revelation, Psalm 98, verse 8, do the, it says the rivers clap their hands in worship of God. Okay, when you read that, do you picture hands popping up out of the river and doing this? Because if that ever happens, throw the guy a life raft because somebody's in trouble down there. It's not literal there. You know, did Jesus really want you to hate your father and mother to be his disciple? 
No, it's, it's hyperbole. You know, does Jesus really want you to tear out your eye if it causes you to sin? Well, if we read that literally, I'd see one-eyed people all over the place. It's, it's symbolic. It's meant to be symbolic. So we read the Bible literally where the Bible calls us to read, to read it literally. So Jesus walking on water, that's literal. He really was walking on water. But when, um, when Jesus is described as a lamb with seven eyes, that's obviously not literal. That's meant to point to something. It's a symbol. And that's what apocalyptic literature did. It pointed to stuff like that. Number 12, final one. Um, read this book with humility. Understand that we're probably all wrong about it in some ways. Um, we're probably, you know, as I teach through this series, we'll probably get to heaven one day and realize some of the stuff I taught was wrong. Um, we can only be so certain about events that haven't happened yet. I'm more than will- it's a joke among theologians, I'm more than willing to change my end times view midair. So as Jesus is catching me up to the cloud, I'm, I'm more than willing to say, yeah, I was wrong. I was wrong on that. Understand, the, the Jewish people had a lot of certainty about what the Messiah's coming was going to be like the first time, and they were completely wrong. So wrong they killed the Messiah. Let us not make the same mistake they did regarding the second coming. So, um, I'm going to give you the outline of the book and then purposes that the book was written, and then we'll be finished up. So, the outline of the book. Um, there, there's kind of two views of how the book is laid out. This is going to be important for as we work our way through it. Um, a good amount of people read the book chronologically. So, chapters 1 through 3 is kind of the intro and the letters to the seven churches. 4 through 22 is one chronological story. Uh, that's not how I read it. I think Revelation is organized in cycles. Cycles. So it, it's telling the same time frame over and over and over. These cycles show the time period between the first and second coming of Jesus. It's showing this section of time over and over and over from different vantage points every single time, making different points about it. And so just to give you that outline... This is going to be kind of how I work through it as I teach it. Revelation 1 is just an introduction. Um, each of these sections, well, most of them end with the second coming of Jesus. So I'll show you where those are in each of them, as you see there. Um, so Revelation 1 is an introduction. 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. That's prior to the second coming, so there's no ending with the second coming there. Revelation 4 through 8 the Lamb opens the seven seals. The second coming comes at the end of that in chapter 6, verse 17. As we just read earlier, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. Then John goes back and tells the story again with Revelation 8, 5. If you missed some of these, I might have a typed up version of that for you next week that you can look at um, I want to make sure we have time to finish up, so we um, keep going. Um, Revelation 8, 5 through eleven nineteen is the seven trumpets. It ends with the second coming in chapter 11, 15 through 19, where it's announced from heaven, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of the Lord. So the Lord takes over the world finally for good there. Revelation 12, 
That's a typo. It should be 12 through 15.4, not 15.5. Um, it's this we. I'm going to call that section the, the lamb versus the dragon because it's kind of the war between the lamb and the dragon, Christ and the devil. Um, second coming comes in chapter 14. The lamb comes to Mount Zion and the angels go out and harvest the earth, capture up all the saints and, and bring them. Revelation 15.5 through 16.21 are the seven bowls. It goes back and shows the judgment again. Um, the second coming comes in 16.17 where it cries out from heaven, it is done. Severe judgment falls on all those who belong to the beast. Again, we'll have these. I know I'm going kind of quick through them. Um, Revelation 17 through 19, um, the judgment on, the, on Babylon, the beast, and the false prophet. Um, second coming comes in 19, the, the rider on the white horse comes and defeats the beast. Chapter 20 will be a debated section. We'll talk about all the different views when we get to that point. Um, it's the millennium. Um, some people clump this in with 17 and 9 through 19 um, as the judgment of Babylon, the beast, the false prophet, and the devil all over different time periods. Some people separate it and say Revelation 20, is act, the millennium is actually the, all of this stuff again. Um, so from that perspective, the second coming comes in 2010 where the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. But we'll talk about the different views and, and I'll let you decide where you fall on that one. Um, 21 and 22 is eternity. It comes after the second coming. It shows heaven, shows the glory of eternity and, and what all comes with that. This was a very common form of writing for Jewish people. They didn't write chronological stories like we did. They told the same event over and over and over. You see it a lot in the prophets. They will tell of a judgment and they'll go back and do it again and they'll go back and do it again to emphasize it. So it was a common thing. It's not just something I came up with. This is how they wrote in this day. Um, so four purposes of the book, and then we're done. Um, this book does not exist to promote speculation about the second coming. It's written to give, to give hope to suffering Christians. That's the first purpose. As we've seen, um, Persecution has been the story of the church. Tribulation has been the story of the church. Um, at this time when this was written, Roman emperors would, would soak Christians in flammable material and put them up on a post and, and light them on fire to keep the city lit at night. Um, so it's a, it's a terrible time to be a Christian in this time and all times after that. Um, these are Christians who are going to see their family and friends be taken away, tortured, imprisoned, and killed just for being Christians. And it looks to these people like the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are winning. But Jesus gives them the revelation to show what is going on behind the scenes. He's overcome. And they will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Revelation 12, 11. Second, to dispute false teaching. It is important that we believe it's important that we don't believe false teaching because false teaching will destroy us. It, it will lead us into disaster. And Revelation is clear that Babylon rules the world. We'll get into who Babylon is when we get there. Um, and the beast rides on Babylon. And Babylon seeks to lead Christians astray and destroy them. 
So we must challenge the narrative and worldview of the day to remain faithful to Christ. Thirdly, to call Christians to remain faithful and live holy. Emperor worship was common in that day. The emperor was held up as a god. And you were seen as committing treason against your nation for not worshiping the emperor. And Revelation calls them to be faithful. Do not worship the emperor. There was also rampant immorality. Religions existed where you went to the temple and, and committed sexual sin to, with, with, the, with the prostitutes there at the temple. Revelation calls them to not corrupt themselves with that immorality. This is always the call for the church. For Martin Luther, it was don't recant the doctrines that you've believed because the Catholic Church tells you to. For us, it's don't give in to the sexual, revolution, the sexual revolution's demands of our day no matter what it costs you. Don't accept the lie that all religions lead to God. Don't, don't, don't buy into those things. Revelation calls us to not do that. And finally, final purpose of the book, to move us to missions. Revelation's clear, so many times judgment is coming on the world. There's two groups of people, those who follow the lamb, those who follow the beast. Those who follow the lamb will be saved from the judgment coming on the world. Those who follow the beast will be destroyed by God's judgment. According to Revelation, there are no neutral people. There are those who follow the lamb against the current of the world, and there are those who go along with the flow of the world and are under the control of the beast. Which one are you? And which one are your loved ones? Your friends, families, neighbors, and coworkers are not neutral. They are committed to either the lamb or the beast. Their destiny is either the New Jerusalem or the lake of fire. So we must be on mission. We must not stop trying to reach them with the message of what Christ has done. There's only so much time left you must commit yourself to reaching the lost people in your life if you really love them. Fight like crazy to see them become followers of the Lamb and thus be rescued from the beast. I, in this series, don't want to show you charts and speculations, current events in Revelation. I want to show you Christ. We read that chapter, that those verses there. Look at who Christ is. He's the, he's the one who was and who is and who will be. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's the faithful witness, the ruler of kings on the earth. I read this passage this morning. He's the one who's freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. He will get all glory and dominion forever and ever. So many more things. He's the main character of this book. Let us come away impressed by him. May this study lead you to deeper affection for Jesus, greater worship of him, and more anticipation for his return. So keep these, keep them in your Bible. We're going to reference them a lot as we study through for the next nine weeks. Um, so now I'm going to give you a chance to ask some questions. Um, if you have any questions about something I said, if you saw something in the text that I didn't see that you maybe want to talk about, um, I will read or I will say questions again for you that are watching this on Wednesday night so you can hear it. And then if you have any questions watching this on Wednesday night, go ahead and comment those below. I'll make a separate video answering those questions. So are there any questions, follow-up questions you want to talk about? Because I've given you a lot tonight. It's gone pretty late. Okay, well, we will pray and we will be done.
Father, I come to you and I thank you that Jesus has loved us and he has freed us from our sins. And Lord, may this book make us see his glory and see how wonderful he is. Father, I pray that you will give us understanding of this book. Help us to see how, how simple and clear it is and how much hope there is in it. Oh God, may Christ shine in our lives and may we share him with others. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.